If you would grab a New Testament and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we'll start in the lesson of the hour. You know, I think that we can understand on a very broad level the benefit, and I would say at times even the necessity to speak to each other about certain things and describe certain things in the negative. And so we may be describing maybe what we do as a, a person in the workforce or um, describing our family to someone or our personality. And we may describe that in, in the negative. I'm not this way. And that gives us a better understanding of who we are. It gives someone else a better understanding of who we are. But if we only did that, we wouldn't really have the full picture and so we tell each other who we are, what we do, and not just who we're not and what we don't do. And I think that there's a spiritual principle to that, and we see it in the Bible. Being a Christian certainly means that there are things we're not doing. Being a Christian certainly means that there are things we're running from and that we're avoiding at all costs. For example, the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and in verse 11, You, O man of God, flee these things. We know the context as he had just spoke about the need for contentment and he warned Timothy about the love of money and the desire to be rich and how much sorrow that would bring someone, how much evil that brings someone's life and how a Christian cannot live the way Christ calls them to live if they love money and are desiring to be rich. They need to learn to be content. And so he says, flee these things. You get away from them. You don't dabble in that. You don't flirt with that kind of a lifestyle and mindset. And I think we understand that. There are things we need to run from. We don't just avoid them. We actively flee from them. At every turn in our life, we realize the danger may be there and we are doing everything within our power to run from those evils. But that's not what being a Christian is really about. It will come with being a Christian and I don't want to minimize that. You cannot participate in certain things and be a Christian. You must flee from certain things if you are to be a faithful Christian. Notice what Paul also said. You, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. If my family and I were going to go on a vacation or maybe just visit family, maybe we're going down to Fort Worth to visit my family or up to Kansas City to visit Zoe's family, we would not describe that as going merely away from Oklahoma City. If someone asked where we're going, we would not simply say we are going out of Oklahoma City. We wouldn't even simply just say we're going north or we're going south. We would describe the destination. This is where we're going. We're going to see Zoe's family in Kansas City. We're going to see Jeremiah's family in Fort Worth. Perhaps we're going on a vacation to Colorado or Hawaii, whatever it may be. 
I think we understand we need the full picture in communication. We may put it in the negative. But if we don't put it in the positive, we don't have the full meaning of what things are and how they actually are. And I think that's how we need to describe and think of faith. It's certainly how the Bible puts it. Faith certainly is not certain things. Faith certainly does not do certain things. And faith certainly flees certain activities and mindsets. But brethren, if we're only thinking about serving God in the negative, I'm not this, I don't do this, we will not be able to serve God in the way that He wants us to serve Him. We will not be the Christian that God calls us to be. But if we have the faith we're called to, we're going to be pursuing certain things. We're going to be active in certain areas. And I think that's what Paul is telling Timothy. You must flee these things, but you also have to pursue. Really, those are two actions of faith. I know that it's multifaceted, and we could talk about a lot of different characteristics and activities of faith, but certainly two of those actions are found there in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. Yes, faith flees. He had warned him in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the root of uh, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O oh man, flee these things. You don't mess with that, Timothy. You don't approach preaching and life in general with the intention to gain more and more and more without satisfaction or sufficiency. That's dangerous. You flee these things. And so certainly faith flees. You remember in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul was giving attention there to the reality that everyone is a part of in the spiritual realm. And he explained to the Ephesians there in verse 12 of chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places in Christ. And so you, you have faith, realize, and not question what God says about the spiritual dangers. He says you can't see it. You don't feel it. You don't smell it. But certainly it's there and he's warning us and faith doesn't question that faith realizes that it's not my eyes that navigate my life, but it is the word of God and the word of God is warning about these trials and these tribulations and these temptations and the spiritual enemy that though he is invisible to my eye is very real and is seeking to kill my soul. And so faith runs away from everything the Bible warns about. Proverbs 14, 12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And faith does not rationalize those ways. Faith does not see that verse and try to rationalize my decision to go my way, which is very clearly not the way of God. It accepts with full confidence 
that if I go this way, the end is death, and it runs from that way. Galatians 6 and verse 8 says, those who sow to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Faith does not rationalize those seeds of the flesh. Faith does not say, well, it's different for me. Paul says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, but I think I've got enough control to pursue riches and to maintain a godly life in Christ Jesus. Faith doesn't do that. Faith runs from it. Faith flees. Or like we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, Paul tells Timothy there, flee also youthful lusts. Young people, faith does not hear that and then rationalize what I do with my friends or my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I'm different. I'm stronger than all these other people. Yes, it says flee, but I can toe the line and still get up to the edge. Faith runs from it. Faith puts up the walls between self and sin and error. Like Joseph in Genesis 39 and verse 12, when Potiphar's wife finally reached the height of her pursuit of Joseph and grabbed him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Faith does that, brethren. Faith flees. And it's not cowardice. It's actually courage and trust in God's word. And you cannot be a faithful Christian without fleeing. But here's the thing. If all I think about as a Christian is not doing what the world does, and I don't think about active life in Christ in the kingdom, I will not be the Christian that God calls me to be. And that's why Paul didn't just say, you must flee these things. He says, you must pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. You must not only flee youthful lust, but you must pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. I want to tell you that saving and living and God-glorifying faith is always in pursuit of the flawless standard of Christ. It's not enough to just say, I'm not these things. Who are you? What are you? A Christian is a very positive description. While it may inherently possess some negative things that I'm not like the world, being a Christian is a positive manner of life. It's a, it's a vocation. It's a calling. I am following the word of Christ. I am imitating the Son of God. Whereas Ephesians 4 and verse 13 puts it, when Paul is talking about the gifts Christ left for men in the church to be edified, he says, until we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Or what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's an activity, a positive thing. Or as he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so Christ is doing something in me. He's living in me. And I know that if that's the case, there are certain things I'm going to be fleeing from. There are certain things that are not going to be found in the life of a faithful Christian. 
And if they are, they're not a faithful Christian. But you're not a faithful Christian just by not being an immoral person. And this is something that I myself have had to grow in. And I know that we all do. It's, it's just like the point we make from time to time that you may have been baptized so that you don't go to hell, but you need to grow into loving God and Christ. The things that you do and the things that you don't do, it's not about just escaping hell. Well, that should never go away. But now it comes into a, a more substantive and wonderful acceptance of and appreciation for the love of God for me and me reciprocating that to him. I'm doing it because I want to be in heaven with him. I want to love him. I want to show him my devotion. It's the same thing here. Initially, what you may be as a Christian is one who is just trying to cut off the old man. And I, I need to find out what I'm doing that I shouldn't do and stop doing it. And that's very much a part of growth. But if that's all we're doing, it's only a matter of time until we fall back into those things that we're trying to flee. Because flight really and truly necessitates pursuit. I've got to be aiming for something. I can't live my life aimless. And so I want us to think about the importance of pursuit. And I would suggest to you for, from the start is that really when it comes down to it, and I understand there are nuances to this, but if we really want to simplify it, really they're, they're two sides of the same coin. If I'm truly fleeing unrighteousness, that means I am pursuing righteousness. If, if I'm merely fleeing What's probably the case is I'm fleeing a certain form of unrighteousness, but I'm not fleeing at all. And so I'm not pursuing righteousness. I may be a, a, a disgusted by the, the sin of adultery or the sin of murder, but I'm not really bothered by lying to my brethren. And so I may be fleeing that certain form of unrighteousness, but I'm not pursuing righteousness. But if I'm truly fleeing ungodliness and unrighteousness, that means I'm pursuing the opposite end of those things, righteousness and godliness. And so flight is empty because flight empties. It empties ourselves of things that are negative, things that kill our souls, things that pull us further away from Christ. But pursuit is important because it fills the void. And you can't be faithful by being just an empty shell. In Matthew 12 and verse 30, Jesus utters really what is a maxim. There's a specific context he utters it in. But it really is something that applies in all areas of the Christian life. He explains, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And so being with Christ and gathering with Christ, those are activities. Those are positive and productive actions of faith. We're actively doing something. But notice to be against Christ and to scatter abroad, you don't need to be actively engaged in immorality. You need only be negligent in gathering with him and being with him. And so I might not be an adulterer. I might not be a liar. I might not be a murderer. I might not view filthy content like the world does. I might not be a lot of things that the world is. But all it takes for me to scatter what Christ is trying to gather, to destroy the work that Christ is trying to accomplish, 
is by not being involved in that work myself. And that's a sobering, sobering thought. It's very important to yourself and your family, your relationship with God and to this congregation for you not to be involved in immorality and sinful activity. But what will really glorify God, grow this church and strengthen yourself and your family is to be actively engaged in the positive work of the Lord. He speaks a parable to this end. There in the same chapter in verse 43. And he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. Is it a good thing when Jesus cast a demon out of a man? Certainly. And this is a, a parable. This is making an illustration. That's a great thing. But he's saying if that man does not then walk with Christ, pursue godliness and righteousness, he's leaving himself with more vulnerability, not just for that demon, but for others to come and inhabit his soul. Now, this is an illustration. And I think the point lies within the context where Jesus had just healed a man and cast out an unclean spirit. They saw that unequivocally. And that does wonderful things as it had throughout his ministry. And even in John's ministry, the way was being prepared. Then Jesus came and they saw him do these miracles. And they're starting to wonder, could this be the Messiah? And the Pharisees didn't question the miracle in Matthew chapter 12. So there was good that was done to that. They saw evidence and that prepared the way for them to accept Christ. But when that void is not filled with the kingdom of God and his righteousness with following by faith, the man who just performed this miracle and showed himself to be the son of God, then it's just going to leave more room for more corruption and more doubt and more negligence. And brethren, that's how it is for us individually. It's good to be rid of sin. It's good to be rid of, of doubt, to, to be rid of ungodliness and worldliness, but if that void is not filled with the will of God and activity in his kingdom, all we're setting ourselves up for is further corruption. Isn't that what Peter meant in 2 Peter chapter 2 when he talked about those who had been enlightened, they, they had become Christians, and they had turned back to sin, and he, he describes them as being a sow who has returned to her wallowing in the mire after having been washed, or a dog returning to his own vomit. And he's saying that the latter end is worse for them. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back and away from the Holy Commandment. And so, yeah, they got rid of sin. They were cleansed. They were added to the body of Christ and they didn't progress. They didn't do the Lord's will. They didn't actively pursue these things of righteousness. And that just leaves more room for evil to come in. So flight is important because it empties us of impurities, of, of sin and error. But it needs to be followed with pursuit. I want to tell you also that faith that pursues reflects a more intimate knowledge of God. Remember what John described 
God as, as he recited and reflected the message that Jesus, the word of life, had declared to them concerning God. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And we say, you see, he says God does not have darkness in him. And I think that's a very legitimate and a very important way of describing the nature of God. In God is no darkness. God cannot be tempted, James 1. God cannot tempt for someone to do evil. God has no sin. God has no darkness. But why does he have no darkness in him? Why does he have no sin? Why can he not tempt us to sin? Because he's light. You understand that? So faith that is more full is faith that pursues and faith that pursues reflects a greater knowledge of God. Because he goes on to say there in verse 6 that if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, but how do we know we have fellowship with him? He doesn't say you don't walk in darkness. That may be implied. But I'm impressed that he says if we say we have fellowship with him or if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we do something, if our life is actively engaged in this path of light, we have fellowship with him. And that's where the human judgment comes in. Okay, what is darkness? I may not lie. I may not steal. I may not uh, commit sexual immorality of some sort, whatever it may be. But you may be doing other things as well. You may not be walking in the light. If we really appreciate and understand who God is, we're going to be pursuing holiness. First Peter chapter one says we're going to be walking in the light. And so a Christian who thinks they know God, who's not actively pursuing the will of God, but is merely living separate from gross immorality, doesn't really know God as well as they think they do. God is. And because he is, there are certain things he is not. But never forget what I think is that very profound and wonderful truth that God is. He is light. Chapter 4 and verse 8 says this. It says, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There's a lot of things that God then is not because he is love. But a faith that really appreciates that God is love does not just avoid certain sins, though that will be the case, but it also is active in loving God and loving those who God loves. It's pursuing something. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke the 10th chapter, and the question was asked after that parable that I, I think we know very well. He asked the man, which of those three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Now, the other two that passed by the way and did not help the man were a priest and a Levite. Let me suggest to you, the priest and Levite didn't know God as well as the Samaritan. They certainly didn't love that neighbor. But they don't know God if they see a helpless soul and are cold-hearted enough to walk on the other side of the road past him. It says the Samaritan had compassion on that man and helped him. 
Faith that pursues reflects a more intimate knowledge of God. I want to suggest to you that faith that pursues trust in God's grace. You ever hear someone as you're trying to teach them to the gospel and you come to the, the point where obviously there is the question about either themselves or someone they know, perhaps a family member who is in sin, and, and, and they kind of hesitate when they get to that point because if they accept what the Bible is saying, then they've got to accept that that person either is not right with God or I am not right with God or this person was not following God when they passed away. And so they'll say something like this, I just don't know why God would punish a good person. They have a faith that only is viewed through the negative lens. What do they mean by a good person? It doesn't mean they faithfully worshiped God. They faithfully studied their Bible. They faithfully walked in the steps of Christ. It may just mean that they aren't like those guys in federal prison. They, they usually told the truth. They only drank a little bit. They weren't drunkards. And so, yeah, they weren't actively serving God, but they weren't evil. And that's human judgment. But what faith that pursues does is it trusts in God's grace because those people, they're suggesting that God won't send a person like that to hell. What they mean is, I'm not as bad as these people over here. And it's interesting that the people that say that, they'll hold on to this false teaching of salvation by faith alone through grace alone or by grace alone through faith alone to avoid this concept of earning their salvation. But when they say that, I just don't see how God would send a good person to hell or punish a good person. Well, they're not this. I'm not as bad as this person over here. Who's really earning their salvation? You're saying I ought to be able to go to heaven because of what I do not do. But a true understanding of God's grace and trust in God's grace will end in us running toward it. And this is what 2 Peter chapter 1 is really about when he speaks about the knowledge of Christ and encourages growth in it. He says, give all diligence and add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to that love. And he says, if you do these things, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are positive things. He ends the epistle saying, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I think that's what he was describing there in 2 Peter chapter 1. Grace doesn't just mean God will save you in spite of your sin. Grace means God will cleanse you of that sin and make you, as you comply by your free will, into a better and more perfect reflection of the image of His Son. And faith that is biblical pursues God's grace that He provides in the gospel. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's speaking about himself and the other apostles. He had said that I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. And he doesn't stop there that that God's grace is great in my life because I stopped persecuting the church. That's not what he ends with. He says, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And so grace does not just simply eliminate from our lives, but it changes us 
And a faith that flees is only getting half of that equation. We've got to have the faith that pursues God's will and therefore pursues God's powerful and changing grace. You're cheating yourself, in other words, out of the grace of God by simply having a faith that flees. You've got to pursue God's will. Faith also that pursues is a working faith. I understand it's important not to do certain things, but that's not what the idea of activity and work is. That's inactivity. I'm not doing something. And in order to be pursuing and doing the will of God, certainly I cannot be reveling in sin, but pursuit is necessary to have a working faith. In Galatians 5 and verse 6, he says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 2 and 3, he describes their work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. We're talking about an activity. And so I might not be conformed to the world anymore. I'm not trying to look like the world and live like the world. But if I'm not transformed by the renewing of my mind, Romans 12 and verse 2, then I'm not actually able to accomplish the will of God. I can't work for the Lord simply by not being certain things. I've got to pursue the doing of certain things. It's great if you are, generally speaking, not immoral, not untrue, not unfaithful. But if all you are is not something, then you won't be helping a brother who is in need. That's doing something. You won't be faithfully and sincerely worshiping God in spirit and in truth. You won't be restoring a brother. You won't be edifying the church. You understand that all of those are positive activities that I must pursue. And so we can't be certain things, but that doesn't mean we're doing God's will in totality. This is why in James 4 and verse 17, he says, he who knows to do good, but does not do it to him, it is sin. It is sin to do something that is sinful, but it is sin not to do something that God requires. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. You flee these things, but you pursue righteousness and godliness. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You're seeking, you're pursuing. You want to be righteous before God, but you also want to be engaged in the activities of his kingdom which are fruits of righteousness. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 7, Paul told Timothy to reject profane and old wives' fables. So you're rejecting worldly wisdom, but if that's all you do, then worldly wisdom is going to creep back in. He says, pursue or exercise yourself toward godliness. And so I'm not just seeing the danger in worldly thinking, but I am delighting in and pursuing the thinking of God. He says, pursue faith and love. 
I'm actively studying God's word and applying God's word because faith comes from hearing God's word, but it has to be a faith that is alive. That is a faith that is active, James chapter two. And I'm also aware of all the errors that are about me that might cause doubt, but I'm actively taking up the shield of faith through those previous two activities of study and activity and application so that those fiery darts of the wicked one will be quenched. And if that's what I'm really doing, then I'm also pursuing the activities of love. We recently had an invitation on 1 John 5 and verse 1. He believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him, who is begotten of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And so I'm pursuing the will of God because I'm pursuing love. I'm doing that by faith. Those two are inseparable. He says, pursue patience and gentleness. So I've got to pursue growth and endurance, which means I'm not going to turn away from trials. I'm not going to turn away from adversity, but I'm going to turn to God and bear up under those trials and adversities. He says, count it all joy in James 1 and verse 2. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If I'm pursuing that, I'm not simply avoiding sin, but I am running through that trial with the faith that comes from hearing God's word and from laying my cares upon him in prayer and trusting that this is making me better through his grace. And I'm also, as Paul told Timothy, pursuing gentleness, or as Young's literal translation puts it, meekness. It's a word which does not simply mean this mild disposition that deals gently with others like we would think of the word, but beyond that, it has this sense of self-awareness and God-awareness that harnesses my will with God's will. I can do what I want, but pursuing meekness and gentleness means that I am always going to defer to God. And even when I do not fully comprehend and understand why he's telling me take this path, I am realizing that his wisdom is greater than mine and I'm taking that path. This is the way James puts it in James 1. My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I receive God's word with this disposition that realizes God's will is better, more effective, and it's flawless as it's compared and contrasted to my will and I'm just going to do it. But that takes activity. That takes that positive action of pursuit. It's not enough to just stay clear of ungodliness and various sins. You will fail as a Christian, and you will not get to heaven simply by being a better and more moral person than the people in the world. You can only get to heaven through the grace of God that is given in Christ Jesus through the word of Christ that calls you to do in his kingdom, to act in his name, to pursue 
all the positive attributes of the divine nature. Before we dismiss to our classes, we're going to be led in a word of closing prayer.